Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. We're in our summer series, um, Lessons in the Life of David, and I've got a question for us. What is your response to sin? I was thinking as Titus was up here in that amazing time of worship, um, he mentioned brokenness. And this morning, a passage out of Romans uh, chapter 7 came to me. It's It's the passage that says, I want to do the right thing. I'm totally paraphrasing and summing it up. I want to do the right thing, but I don't always do the right thing. There's a struggle there in my heart between knowing what I should do, but doing the thing that I don't want to do. If we desire for God to also say of us, like he says of David, that, um, let me just look around, Becca was a woman after God's heart. Then we need to have an honoring response to our sin, a God-honoring response to our sin. And that's hard to have in our culture today. God and God's laws are slowly being removed, and more people are unchurched than they are churched. The majority of our information comes from that little thing we carry around all the time, our smartphone. We get a bunch of information and learning from that little thing. Not as much from the Bible or in a church setting. We're in a you-do-you world where morality is relative. It seems to be constantly changing. There's no absolute truth to agree on. So how can we agree on what is sin? Nobody is responsible for their actions. I know that I can justify and blame shift my sin. However, the whole narrative of this Bible, including David's story, is the conflict of sin. It's the need for the sin problem to be solved. Sin is serious to a holy God. And as we're going to see, Sin results from a heart after our own will, rather than a heart after God's will. Did you bring your Bibles? Okay, if not, that's okay. Guys will come down and hand you one. Just raise your hand, they'll give you one. It's uh, our gift to you, and you can keep it. You'll also notice the page number right there. It corresponds with this, this Bible right here. Sin affects every aspect of an individual, our mind, our heart, our will, our emotions, our motives, our actions, and our very nature is sinful. 
There's a Puritan preacher in the 1600s. His name was Thomas Watson. And he said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. For sin to be bitter, we must see that our sin does not merely violate some impersonal law. God's law is an expression of his perfect and holy character. Therefore, sin is actually a personal offense against our holy God who created us. In studying the life of David, up to this point, we've seen David. He's been a mighty warrior, a man of integrity. He's keeping oaths that he swore. He's showing kindness. And we've seen the character of, of David contrasted with the character of Saul. First, we have King Saul, and he was chosen by the people, and he operated out of a place of pride. And we've seen David, who's chosen by God, operating out of a place of humility. For us in our house, school is starting back up, so sports are starting back up, and I was thinking it's a little bit of a stretch, but if there were a Team David, I would want to wear a Team David jersey. Because we've been rooting for David up to this point. We rooted for him when he went out to fight against Goliath. We were rooting for him when he was on the run. We wanted him to become king, and then we cheered him on to become king. This is the point of the story, though, where I often think maybe I want to take off the Team David jersey. There's a shift in the story, a turning point in David's life. He's been conquering in battles. He's been rising in power. He's blessed by God, ruling and reigning as king. And then, for the remainder of David's story, we're going to see brokenness in his family, political deception, and a king on the run again, all because of sin. Now, I love the Old Testament, and I don't understand when people say the Bible is boring. Because we're in the middle of this story, this biblical narrative of the Bible. And I guarantee you, it's just as dramatic, if not more, drama than the DVR show you've got going on at home. Okay? We're going to see some lust that turns to adultery. There's going to be murder and cover-up. The tension is going to mount, and there's going to be a confrontation. And this is the real deal. It's not the DVR drama show. But because of that, there are parts of David's story that may hit close to home for some of us. Some of you have been betrayed in deep and hurtful and lingering ways. Some of you may actually be the one who's betrayed a relationship and destroyed the trust. Some of you are experiencing some discipline in by the Lord right now. And some of you are hiding and covering up sin. God is the narrator of David's story. And God is the narrator of your story. God cares deeply about your story. Let's jump in to chapter 1, or chapter 11, verse 1. 
In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Okay, there are two views kind of out there. One is that David is shirking his military responsibility. As a king, he's supposed to lead in battle. The other view is that it really wasn't that unusual. We do know that there's a battle in chapter 10 that he did not go with them. And in another battle, David actually had grown weary and he was almost killed and his men suggested that he not go out into battle anymore. We can only speculate, as have the commentaries, on the reason that David is not out to battle. But the bottom line is, he is at home. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Yeah, I just said that in church. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Now, this is the first that we hear about Bathsheba. And we're not really given any great details about Bathsheba. We don't, it's not, we're not told she did anything wrong or that she enticed David. Yes, she's bathing, and we know why. Um, it's not the middle of the day for all to see. It's actually the evening, and possibly the sun is going down, so it's not even um, really bright out. Uh, the majority of the men should be fighting. They're off in war. Uh, David isn't. David is on the roof of his palace, which would be placed at a high point in the city, so he's able to look down and see her. We don't know whether Bathsheba came by force or if she willingly came. And you're going to notice that she's always referred to in the rest of these verses as Uriah's wife or the wife of Uriah. And that happens until after David and God work out, their work this whole thing out. And I just think the omission of details about Bathsheba only reinforces that this story is David's story. It's about David's actions. We don't hear God confronting Bathsheba, but we will see that God confronts David. So this is David's sin. Now we also know that David sent someone to find out who she was. Okay, now if she had been single, he could have taken her as his wife or added her to the harem. But he finds out that she is the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. Later on, they, uh, in, I think it's, yeah, chapter 23, they list David's fighting men, his elite 30, the best of the best. Guess who's listed? Eliam and Uriah. And then we also know in another chapter that Bathsheba is the granddaughter of one of David's trusted counselors. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, 
He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This information about Bathsheba was David's way of escape, and he disregarded it. The temptation turned to lust, which led to action, which turned to sin. And that's the pattern of sin. I see it, I want it, I take it. James, lets us t- James tells us, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. David's desires ruled in his heart above God's desires. He saw it, he wanted it, and he took it. He ignored the way of escape provided by the Lord. So he slept with Bathsheba and she became pregnant. Now David has a major dilemma on his hands. Rather than taking personal responsibility and owning up to his actions, he begins a cover-up plan. Then David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Uh, This is interesting to me because they actually had runners, and it was their job to keep David informed about the battle. Yet Uriah, one of those elite soldiers, is seemingly sent by King David to give a report about how the battle is going on. One has to wonder if Uriah suspected anything. Then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. So David is probably getting a little bit frustrated at this point. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Desperation has to be setting in a little bit here for David. The plan has failed. Is he going to have to admit what he'd done? A crime that's punishable by death? Nope. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so that he will be killed. And that's exactly what happens. Joab carried out David's orders, And he sends word back to the king to let David know that Uriah is dead. 
Well, oh, so this is David's uh, response. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. No conviction. Just a hardened heart. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. This is part of the Old Testament kinsman redeemer role. If you love the story of Boaz and Ruth, you're a little bit familiar with this. So Uriah is a foreigner, and most likely he didn't have any family there that could have done the, who could have um, done this kinsman redeemer role. So he, he didn't have a brother who could take Bathsheba in. So on the outside, looking in, everyone probably thought that King David was quite noble in doing this and bringing Bathsheba in. But we know that God sees the true story. And the chapter ends with, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Do you know that God sees your sin? Even if you think it's hidden and you've tried to cover it up, God sees it. If we find ourselves muddled in our sin and we've ignored the way of escape provided to us in our temptation... God can still provide a way of escape through a confrontation. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. Okay, so between the end of chapter 11 and this timing of Nathan being sent, probably it's God's waited about the length of the pregnancy. He's waited for David to come clean many months, and he hasn't done it. David is still living in the cover-up. So the Lord sent Nathan. That word sent jumps out at me because David did a lot of sending up to this point. He sent people, and he gave a lot of orders. But David wasn't ultimately in control. He thought he was. And he thought he'd controlled the situation. And how often do we think that we are ruling and we have controlled the situation? From Genesis in the beginning to Jesus on the cross, it is finished. To amen, come Lord Jesus in Revelation, God is in control. And God does the sending. Why? Why does God send, for Nathan, send Nathan to David? To restore the broken relationship between the two of them, which is caused by David's sin. To save David. Why does God want to save David? God chose David. God loves David. Is there a parallel for us? God sent Jesus. Why? Why did God send Jesus? To restore the broken relationship between us, between me and my creator, between you and your creator, that is caused by our sinful nature. 
God sent Jesus to save us. Why? Why does God save us? Because God chose us. God loves us. Amen? Hebrews tells us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Nathan delivered the word of God to David to pierce his heart, to pierce him to the soul and initiate repentance. And he does so with a parable. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. So David has interrupted partway through Nathan's story to pronounce a judgment. But little did David know that he has just pronounced his own judgment. We see the word repay right there. It's this Old Testament idea of restitution. Can David restore Uriah's, wife, Uriah's life or make any restitution at all to him? And that word for, some uh, translations are fourfold. He must repay four. We're actually going to see later on that David will lose four of his sons. And David is furious that the man stole a lamb. What did David steal? Stole another man's wife. And the rich man had no pity. David also has no pity or remorse for his sin. For his sin. Yet. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. What is your response to confrontation? A man or woman after God's heart is willing to be confronted with their sin. Do you have such a hard exterior that nothing really penetrates it? And maybe you have more of this, you have no right to confront me. I am not going to listen to another broken sinner tell me how I'm wrong. Maybe you throw out that, you take the log out of your eye before you talk about the speck in mine. Or don't judge me. When in reality, scripture tells us that as fellow believers, we can approach another believer in love for the purpose of healing and restoring. And one of my favorite stories in the Bible is Balaam and the donkey. Because God used a donkey to get Balaam's attention. There is no one God couldn't or wouldn't use to confront you in your sin. And our battle should be against the enemy who's trying to devour us 
and against our selfish desire, which leads to the sin and not the messenger. The messenger is not always a person either. We have the story of David. We have this whole book of the Bible written for us for instructional purposes. God can and will use any means to get our attention. And I pray that all of us, that you, that I, would not harden my heart, that we would always be open to correction. With hearts full of humility, we would be willing to hear, you are that man. You are that woman. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. The word despise means to detest, to hate, to loathe. And God is saying, why then have you detested, hated, loathed my word? And you've detested, hated, and loathed me. Despising the word of the Lord in the Old Testament, that's his law. That's God's law and God's commandments. And it's part of God's covenant with his people. It was his protection and his provision for his people. So by David despising God's law, he's despising God's provision and protection. Despising God's word by sinning is a personal offense to God. The Lord and his word are inseparable. To neglect or offend one is to neglect or offend the other. And for us now, we're in the new covenant. I think Jesus best summed up, by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Let us not despise God by despising the word of the Lord. But let us continually seek to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God through his word. Men, you've got a retreat coming up. Ladies, you can jump in and join fall Bible studies. These are your times to become men and women after God's heart, learning his word. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all of Israel. Because of what you have done, I will cause. That's the justice of God. And remember, it's pre-Jesus, so there's a penalty for sin. We'll see later on, all this will be fulfilled in David's very own son. Absalom is going to try to take the kingship from David, and David is going to have to flee for a time. Absalom is going to take David's concubines, and he is going to have sex with him on the very rooftop where David saw Bathsheba and sinned. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It 
It's a simple phrase, but it's not. David confesses. Now notice what David does not do. He doesn't blow up at Nathan. He doesn't grab his sword and just take, out, take Nathan out so he can continue in the cover-up. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't justify. He doesn't blame shift. He takes responsibility. When you're confronted in your sin, do you take personal responsibility for your actions? Paul tells us in Acts, And when he, God, had removed him, Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. For David, in this moment, the will of God is repentance for his sin. God also wills for each of us to be repentant and saved. Like David, we should, in humility, be open to correction and rebuke, the confrontation and calling out of our sin. And after David had confessed, Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. The mercy of God. David does not get what his sin deserves, which according to Old Testament law is the death penalty. And for us, on the other side of the cross, it's still true. Amen. We can also admit, I have sinned against you, Lord. And he says, yes, I know. But I have forgiven you, and you won't die for your sin. From the beginning, God has had the master plan. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for David's sin and for our sin. To restore his creation, to solve the sin problem, and nothing will stop that. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. Now David is shown mercy by God. But he's also disciplined by God. A man or a woman after God's heart accepts God's discipline. In Psalm 51, which is written by David about this very story about Nathan confronting him in his sin, he wrote this. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. David realized God was a God of justice and that sin and disobedience led to discipline. God could choose to do whatever God thought was just in David's situation. And David would accept the consequences. Because David trusted in God alone. David was a man after God's heart who would do what God willed in this situation. He accepted the discipline knowing that God loved him enough to correct him. Hebrews tells us, But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness 
to those who have been trained by it. And how many of us, in times of pain, in times of discipline, it brings us even closer to God. Our dependence upon God is greater. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food, and he lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then, on the seventh day, the child died. Seven days, David turned to God in during this time of discipline. He turned to God, and he fasted, and he pled with him. And then the child dies. David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. He worshipped the Lord. Now this is the David, a man after God's heart. He accepted the discipline. He worshipped despite the no. What do you do when God says no? Do you get bitter and angry? God, how could you do this to me? Why did you let this happen? Or do you accept and worship? We have partial knowledge of the situation. God has full knowledge. Trust God. And then like David, worship. And trust God even more. Not my will, but your will, Lord. David said it. Jesus said it. And we should also say it. A man or woman after God's heart worships. Worship brings the glory back to God. Worship reminds us that God is God and we are not. Worship reminds us that God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And like Job, David knew the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. And in David's case, the Lord took away and the Lord gave. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, his wife, and slept with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And David named him Solomon. The Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, as the Lord had commanded. So he's, David is now able to comfort Bathsheba, who is his wife in God's eyes now. David and Bathsheba are given another child, Solomon, whom the Lord loved. How are you viewing your sin now? Hopefully less through that secular lens and more through the lens of a holy God. A God who chose David and a God who chooses you. A God with full knowledge who can be trusted to rule and reign. A God who desires that our hearts be fully submitted to his will. A God who loves us too much to leave us in our sin and provides a way of escape. A God who loves us so much that he does discipline us. 
a God who deserves our worship. And at this point, we should all want to put back on the Team David jersey. David's story in the Bible was the hope for Old Testament listeners that there would always be a king for God's people. It was and is the promise of God's redemptive plan. His solution to the sin problem, fulfilled in part through David. It's the biblical history of our family. It's the genealogy of Jesus through David. We can wear Team David's jersey, which is Team Jesus' jersey, which is God's team, which is ultimately our family jersey. The story is a story of hope. God never left David in his sin. He never abandoned him. And we as believers have that same hope and promise. God sends for us and he saves us and he includes us in his story. God used David's sin and all. He gave us God's story so we could see from God's perspective what a man, what a woman, after God's heart and seeking to do all of God's will, will do in their sin. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. A man or woman, after God's heart, is willing to be confronted in their sin, accepts God's discipline, and worships. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you, Lord for Jesus. Thank you that you have had a plan all along to restore us, to redeem us. Thank you. We praise you for that, Lord. And all God's people are going to join in with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at Mountain View Fellowship. We'd love the chance to meet you in person. We gather each Sunday at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 1955 Headlight Road in Strasburg, Colorado. If you aren't able to join us in person, we'll meet you right back here next week. God bless.